Namaste and in La Ketchen. Welcome to this episode of One World in a New World. I'm your host, Zen Benefiel, and I'm going to go back to those two keyword phrases for today. Namaste comes from the Sanskrit, ancient language. Spoken, it's called Brahmi. It means the divine in me recognizes the divine in you. In La Ketch comes from across the world the Mayan culture, and it simply means, I am another you. Now, if you just pause and reflect on those two key phrases and approach life from there, imagine the difference it would make. Cool. All right. So this week's guest is Mark O'Brien. Um, we met through BizCatalyst 360, which is this wonderful publishing platform that uh, Dennis Patako put together. He's uh, Mark's the founder and principal of O'Brien Communications Group, which he um, quit his old job in order to form this and felt that I, I'm sure initial entrepreneurial, you know, oh my God, did I just do this? Um, he's also president of EinScience uh, or EinSource, I'm sorry and uh, co-founder of Biz Cosmics, or Comics. Yeah, Cosmics, uh, you, you kind of get where this is going to go. Right? <laughs> so uh, he's also author of three books, and they're Martin the Marlin, the one and only Ben, and Friends Helping, uh, helping Friends, I think is what it, it's called. So, Mark, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on with me today. Thank you for inviting me. You've already made me smile a number of times. Oh, wonderful. You know, it, 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 smiles are great. You know, we were, um, it, it, you know, Melissa Hughes, uh, uh, we had a conversation a few weeks ago and we were talking about this sense, two things, the, the sense of awe and, the, and what a smile will do when you greet someone, kind of like the namaste and in La Catch, right? Only a little more subtle. Um, you get a smile back usually and it makes people feel better, even for just a moment. Yeah. Um, so in response to that, first, I want to say the, the three books that you mentioned, and thank you for mentioning them, are three books that I've written for children. And I really have to get give credit to the children that I've been privileged to share these books with for sort of reinstilling in me awe and wonder, because ch children are fearless, um, and they haven't yet learned or been conditioned to be guarded about their awe and wonder. And th their responses to almost whatever you share with them, as long as they're comfortable that you're doing it on their level, um, are always amazing and, and delightful. And it's... I, I, I did, Sorry, I, I was just going to say, I didn't, I didn't realize that writing and publishing books for children was going to be like having children. But what happens is you create this thing and put it in the world, and then you have a responsibility to it. And I'd never imagined for a second that part of that responsibility would be going to schools to share this stuff with kids. Um, and it's a gift. And what I've learned from them is... Uh, I don't know. It's probably it's not giving. Book. Yeah, oh, it does. It absolutely does. 
and not to pull a commercial line out, but it, it really does. And, and now, do you find that in doing this, that, that your own inner child kind of woke up again? Oh, with, without a doubt. With, without a doubt. What was that like? It was a combination of two things, actually. Um, first, it felt like a light going on, almost as if I had just been allowed or invited to go home again. Um, and I realized, wow, I can, I can do that. And then the second thing was that it caused me to wonder about how or why I had ever forsaken that in the first place. And just, just before we started to record, you used the phrase, and I'm sorry, I don't remember what it was, but it had to do with that sense of somehow knowing. Inner knowing. Inner knowing. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I mean, I've been aware of this my whole life, that I had never completely abandoned that inner knowing, but I don't know that I ever thought I could fully exercise it again. And, and being in groups of children, sometimes three and 400 at a time, just, it just, it, it, it gave that back to me. Oh, I, I can imagine that. I, I taught high school for almost a decade and the feeling of being engaged and getting the students engaged and mine, I think are probably a little different level. I was high school and you generally deal with the, the younger crowd. Yep. Still there's that, and even in high school, they haven't completely lost that sense of awe, wonder, and curiosity. Although many of them have by that time. And that's unfortunate. Do, do, we, um, do we surrender that or do we have it taken from us? I think both. I mean, uh, because we do have that agency, right? That, that we were talking about earlier, that um, you've got a choice. And you can acquiesce, you can, you know, go with the flow in that direction where you give that agency up to others and you learn about what they think life should be for you and how you should be, you know, think, act and behave. Uh, uh, and then there's that, oh, I'm so lonely because I'm so different than others and when I talk about my own sensitivity and my curiosity and, and things like that I get shut down right and, and for instance you know when I was a kid and, and I learned that I was adopted uh, when my sister was brought home shortly thereafter you know I had these questions who my biological parents you know who my real parents do I have a father and mother in heaven can I talk to them and within a few months after that, I was in front of a window one night and in that curious place and this big booming male voice simply says, hey, you. And it was so loud and so reverberating. I spun around and I asked my mother sitting at the bottom of the stairs watching TV. If, and I, it wasn't the TV. I asked her if she could hear it. And she said, no, what voice? And, and oh. I, you know, small kid's voice trying to go deep saying that voice. I said, hey, you. And she goes, no, nope, didn't hear it. Must have been a peeping Tom. Totally disavowed what I had just experienced from her perspective. Now, I was, 
I guess, astute enough at that time that I knew that was my direct experience and nobody was going to take that away from me. And so over my lifetime, that voice developed and, and I've been able to have conversations. Now, do I share that with people? Heck no, right? I'm weird enough already. <laughs> and yet it's there. Now, in response to your, do we give it up? Yeah, we do. We, we make that choice. Um, it's not a reflection on whether we're strong enough to resist it or not. It, it's just something that seems to happen. And I think that in, as we get older, we recognize at some point when we go through that awakening, um, and it's a, I had a psychiatrist tell me one time that most people don't go through that, uh, a spiritual awakening until their mid-40s, if they ever. Mm. And I wondered what that was. And, and it was like, well, empty nesters, right? That kind of fits the scenario. Kids leave, now what? Yeah. So they have a chance to, to look back in and say, okay, now where am I at? Who am I? What am I to do now? And, and some ask, right? Not everybody does. Uh, they're still kind of left in that quandary uh, and they just don't spend much time with it. Others dig back in and they do inner child work. They get all the stuff out of the way and they return to at least that uh, similar places when they were young maybe not with the, the total naivety and innocence and curiosity that they we have as children, but some of it returns. And is that kind of what you noticed as you began to explore this again? Um, I think so. Um, what, one, of the, um, one of the elements of my inner knowing was that I was a writer. I just knew that mm -hmm. um, from, as, from as young as I can recall. But I don't think I felt, I think I want to say free enough mm -hmm. to just write. Um, and I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't sure that I would ever write to my satisfaction. Um, Typical perfectionist. Well, yeah, artist. there is that. A absolutely okay. um but i do think the kids gave me back to that i did gave that back to me i do want to share my one hey you moment uh which actually was nothing at all like yours when i was 16 i was working in mcdonald's and it was a really busy night and a lot of people were in and out well i apparently gave um a customer the wrong stuff so i'm standing there behind the counter this skinny 16 year old kid Boom, and the door comes blasting open, and this guy goes, Hey, yo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Mine, yeah, was, a little, was, mine a, was a little less spiritual than you, but I also want to share this with you because you, you shared with me a little bit about your, your dad before we started mm -hmm. to record. Um, I, I've, going back 20 years or so, I suffered from depression. And, you know, was, was successfully treated, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that I always believed was that I couldn't imagine my life without my father in it. And I firmly believed that when he was gone, I was going to crash. I didn't, how, I didn't know how long the crash would last, but I was sure. Mm -hmm. So um, this was in 2014. 
I had spent um, most of a Saturday with him and we were helping someone clean out a shop. And my mom was there too. And when the shop closed at five or 5.15 or whatever it was, um, I walked my folks out to the parking lot and, and hugged them and kissed them. And I thanked my dad for his help. And my dad was a Marine. So what he said was not at all surprising. He said, you don't have to thank me. We spent a great day getting things done. That's what he, he was all about, getting things done. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 12 hours later, he was gone. And at about 4 o'clock the next morning, I got a call from my mom saying that they were in the ER and it was dad, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, a doctor came out and he said, um, I'm sorry, um, you're, you're, they had been trying to revive him. He had arrested. Your dad you didn't make it. And, and I, I almost said this to him, but I wanted to say, look, I'm really sorry. I'm absolutely positive that whoever that was you were just working on didn't make it. But it wasn't my dad because he, that, that's not possible. He wouldn't quit. Hmm. And of course, I didn't say that to him. And then, you know, I kind of came to the realization and the doctor said, you know, give us a few minutes. Um, we've been working on him for about 45 minutes and the room's kind of a mess and we want to clean it up and clean him up. And then I'll come back and tell you. So he came back and he said, okay, you can go see him now. Um, I can't even, uh, I can't even tell you how much I dreaded going in there. But I walked into the room and the curtain was still pulled around the bed. And before I even moved that curtain, one, I could feel, I knew, I knew he was there. And two, I thought, how foolish could I have been to actually think that he would just be gone and that there wouldn't be some presence of him still here? Mm -hmm. And I realized in that moment, there was and there always would be. And I never even came close to a crash. Good. good. Well, you know, it, it's funny and, and not so um, in that with modern day science, even though the word's only been around since the 1400s, it used to be philosophy, that there's this sense, uh, there's this knowing that energy never leaves. It just changes form. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't consciousness operate under that same premise? And, and you and I both have uh, understood it and even had experiences that, yes, this is true. Um, if my NDA, you know, was proof to me that it was. And still there's this, oh gosh, um, emptiness for a little bit. Uh, the, because the physicality is no longer present. Oh yeah, that interactive. You know, I, I think it. Yours, yours was two years after mine. Uh, mine passed on the uh, Christmas Eve morning of 2012. Now, and you know, it brings up for me this. Okay, wow, what? Uh, you know, there's this whole idea of the new time, right? Mayan calendar, winter solstice of 2012, which is December 21st. Well, on December 24th, he passed. So what? You know, what a way for me to get introduced to the new time is have my support yanked away. 
Mm-hmm. You know, even at poet, even at that time, though, he had Parkinson's, and he was just a shell of a man. Um, but he did make the effort to make sure that my mother, who had dementia, was taken care of, and and that was kind of his final thing. They got him into a uh, both into an assisted living center, and three weeks later, he says bye. And uh, of course, that was in Indiana. I'm in Arizona, so I didn't get that kind of personal time with him right afterwards. Uh, and going back, it was um, I, I was devastated for a while. Um, you know, um, he 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 did pass away in early January, um, and even my father was just a sports huge sports fan. Mm-hmm. Even the following NFL football season, the following fall, I'd find myself going for the phone, say, "Hey, did you see? Call that? Hey, did you see that? Oh, you yeah. watching that?" <laughs> Yeah, patterns, you know, and, and and this is one of the things that, you know, back to the kids giving up their agency. There are patterns that we are introduced to that we don't really recognize until much later in life when we become hopefully some kind of a cognitive you know, <laughs> examiner, right? How am I thinking? Why am I thinking? What am I thinking? Where did it come from? How did it get there? How, what can I do to change it? All, all those kinds of things that we go through, right? And sometimes we can do it on our own. And like you mentioning, you know, you went through your bout of depression and, and then, but you got help, right? Yes. A lot of people aren't that fortunate. So yeah. from yeah. that perspective and the help you received, what were the, the nuggets of that help that might offer others an opportunity to look at those cognitive behaviors and transcend from them? Um, I'm, I'm going to try to answer the question, but at first I want to tell you, you just reminded me of something when you said, hopefully we become a cognitive being. Yeah. My, my grandfather, O'Brien, had a million favorite expressions, and one of my favorites is, he would say, you know, you're going to be a great help to your mother someday. And it was that future someday thing that always cracked me up. Right. Um, so to go back to your question, my dad um, was a Marine. And I, I just, I can't even imagine. I, I don't know all that much about the environment in which he grew up. And I can't imagine the pressure that he lived under to live up to to expectations, the Mm -hmm. expectations of others, and maybe especially as a Marine. Absolutely. So I grew up being preached to that if you can't finish something, don't start it. So the idea of help was completely foreign to me. And, you know, my my life is blessed in a zillion ways. And one of them was the the day that I completely crashed, a friend of mine happened to call. Her name is Jill. And as soon as I said hello, she said, what's wrong with you? And I said, Honest to God, Jill, I don't have any idea what's going on. I, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know what to do. And she said to me, I want you to promise me that you won't do anything or go anywhere until I call you back. 
And I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. Um, and she called the psychiatrist and she made an appointment for me with that psychiatrist. And, and I was in such a state that I actually had to be driven to that appointment. So, you know, the evaluation appointment took about an hour. And she said, you constitute about as clear a case of biological depression as I've ever seen. I want to prescribe an antidepressant for you. And I said, no. She just kind of looked at me and she said, okay. And I left and I called her the next day. And I said, I really don't know what you want to do. I really don't know how it will change me. That's what I was most afraid of. But whatever it is that you're going to recommend can't possibly be worse than what I'm contending with now. So I was driven back there the very next day. And I walked in and she said, you feel like you're giving up on a fight, don't you? And I said, yeah, because if you're my father's kid, you don't give up on anything. Mm -hmm. And she said, do you understand that I'm a doctor? And I said, yes, I do. And she said, if you came to me with any other condition and I told you it was treatable, would you refuse the treatment? And I said, no, I wouldn't. So I consented then. That was my first experience be between her and my friend Jill, that there, was, there might actually be help. And then of course it became a process of recognizing the fact that I could and accepting the fact that I should ask for help right. when I needed it. And then it was like, it was like the world opened. Right, right. And now I let me thought, ask you this, that, that, um, having seen a psychiatrist myself and, and had been prescribed stuff, and, you know, as a teenager, um, today I probably wouldn't go with the prescription route. How were you, were you comfortable with the pharmacology? Yes. Okay. And I, and I was comfortable with the pharmacology because she explained it to me. She gave me all of the liter literature that I asked for. And I guess I'm still not sure that she should have said this to me, but she told me that she had suffered from depression herself. And she did tell me that there was a range of medications. She told me what each one was for and particular attributes of it. And my, my depression was accompanied by or characterized by whew, uh, what I would just call this stark, unrelenting terror hmm. uh, to the point that I was terrified to get out of bed. I was terrified to step outside the door. Um, literally, if I was mowing my lawn, I was, I was just looking around. I didn't know what the hell I expected, but something was coming down. Obviously, nothing was coming down, but, right. I, but, but I believed it was. And you were in that place that something had triggered you 
to to go into that uh, ultimately self-deprecating place and everything else just kind of folded in around you almost like an implosion right now just as the implosion happens you know cause and effect equal and opposite right and this goes back to that energy thing so once you imploded and you were able to to kind of figure out that there was a way out of that and you were comfortable with it and it made sense ultimately and you know these, these are things that uh, i'm sure what you're describing is felt by thousands if not millions of people on a daily basis they just don't talk about it or know how or where to get help for it let alone have a good friend mm -hmm. you know that cared enough to make an appointment for him mm -hmm. and and of course, there's also an economic concern that everybody has health insurance. And so there's this, you know, what am I going to do? Um, so once that took place, though, and you began to um, shovel off the dirt that, you know, from the hole you dug for yourself and, and got filled in, how was that experience? And, and what were the kinds of things that you noticed uh, maybe not immediately, but in reflecting on it, the those um, benchmarks, the milestones that you hit in coming out of that, and, and what were they like? Um, my doctor told me that, you know, there was not going to be anything miraculous or immediate about it, um, but I, 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 was doing it to get myself back to what she described as a baseline. Because, you know, at the bottom of the thing, I couldn't even, I couldn't even be reasoned with. I couldn't reason. Mm -hmm. um, and so somewhere around four or five weeks, I remember thinking, I can't be entirely sure if this medication is working or, or if I'm just getting really pissed about feeling this way. But, but, but I noticed that this transition started taking place in which I wasn't feeling that way. Um, the, 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 the bleakness went away. Um, my ability to reason started to come back. Um, I felt significantly less bleak about everything. Um, I didn't have that uh, overwhelming sense of worthlessness that I had had. And, you know, needless to say, there was, I guess we'd call it uh, talk therapy or counseling or something going on. So right. it, wasn't, it wasn't just like, here, take this prescription, right. good luck. And with uh, that talk therapy, there's oftentimes, and I, I found this to be true for me, and I think others may as well, it's not what the counselor or therapist says to you it, beyond the questions. It's what's going on inside your own head. Yep. And your own conversation, which by having someone to talk to, then that conversation comes out of your head and you can hear yourself and you're still processing what you're saying simultaneously because you're listening to yourself and your brain's going, well, wait a minute. I, I, you know, gosh, I, know, I didn't realize I could say that or I didn't realize I felt this way or thought that way until you speak it. So 
what was the, did you notice those kinds of things? And what were the things that came out of your own mouth that gave you indications that, oh yeah, I'm making progress? Well, first, first of all, um, I recognized a discernible rationality in what I was saying. Um, I recognized that what I was saying um, was no longer a manifestation of the fear that, that I had experienced. And my friend Jill, who, who happened to call me on that day and with whom I stayed in touch, um, used to say to me, and, and at first it, it angered me because I thought, and this is one of the traps of depression, I think, it makes you think that you're alone. Don't, don't even, don't tell me that you know what I'm going through. You have no idea what I'm going through. That's what I thought. Right. And she would say to me, listen, you have to believe this. You are not yourself now, but you will be again. And that, that honest to God, that used to just piss me off because it just felt like. Placating. Yeah, a diminishment or, yeah, or yeah, yeah. Some, some kind of a dismissal. And then I came around to realizing as I was coming out of it, it wasn't that. It wasn't a diminishment. She wasn't dismissing me at all. Um, she was just she acknowledging was, the process. Yeah. And, you know, I think she was trying to keep me from doing harm to myself. Because, um, you know, at, at one point that wasn't out of the question. I'll put, I'll put it that way. Yeah. And, and, and then I think all of the things that you were just describing became more and more true. And as I was hearing myself talking about the things I was talking about, I gradually became more and more able to say, hold on a second, dude. <laughs> the O'Brien who had all his marbles would never have thought that. He would never have thought that way. And so then I felt like I was, I'm going to steal your term again. I felt like I was somehow reconciling with my inner knowing yeah. and, you know, began, began to trust that. And you did it through the internal dialogue you were having as well as the external dialogue you were having with your therapist. Now, one yeah. of the things that I, I um, noticed, and you had a friend that you thought the world of and that he had pretty much everything that he and his wife were working together creatives right and they had a really wonderful business and then they moved and just a few later she found out you were you know you thought about him you looked him up and he'd committed suicide yeah now yeah. this is one of, i've known several artists and, and not just artists but just people throughout my lifetime that you know you think they really got it going on and then all of a sudden they're gone they commit suicide it's like why you know but from what you're saying in that place of distraught anxiety filled separation from the world and you feel so alone even from the creative because you know what you do exteriorly doesn't necessarily indicate what's going on inside mm -hmm. um, and, and there is at least some reference from um, people from elsewhere through another um, gentleman that I, I've gotten to know about. I never knew him in person, but he left some writings behind that we live half inside and half outside. 
And no matter, you know, we can act like nothing is the matter <laughs> exteriorly or, or exteriorly. And, and, you know, we do the job and we seem like we got it all, you know, we've got it going on. And then internally, we're so distraught and empty. And um, so the outer activity is almost a coping strategy. You know, I, I, I worked, uh, I was working at an ad agency at the time. And do, do, do you know who Roy Buchanan was, the guitarist Roy Buchanan? Yes. Okay, he, 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 um, he did an album later in his career for Alligator Records called When a Guitar Sings the Blues. Hmm. And he recorded, I think the instrumental is called Chicago Smokestack. And one of the session guys said to him after he finished ripping off this blistering solo, he said, how can you do that? You seem so calm on the outside. And Roy said, yeah, but I'm burning up inside. And, and I remember being at work in this ad agency one day, and I literally, I felt like screaming. I felt like running. Um, I just felt like everything was completely flying apart. And I was sitting in the office of the young woman who was our media director at the time. And she said to me, you know what? One of the things that amazes me most about you is that you're always so calm and your eyes are always so peaceful. I had no idea what to make of that. No idea. And I thought- You have had a spot within you that was still that present child that was there, even though, uh, and I think this is due to the patterns that we build up and the way we think, and, and we build these, you know, it's like a coat of armor that we build up over time. And, and I used to do this, it's kind of a stand-up routine. It was a live metaphor for transformation. I'd start off with a three-piece suit and I'd end up in these artsy-fartsy clothes. <laughs> and I'd use each piece of clothing as a metaphor for what we go through, you know, getting a coat of armor, divesting ourselves, untying the knot, getting the shirt off our backs, you know, all that kind of stuff. And still, once that's done and, and even recognizing, others still can see that being that you are in your eyes, even though your mental processes are withholding its activity mm. because of your fear. Oh, absolutely right. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's funny how I would envision what you just said. Um, there's a scene in the uh, 1989 Tim Burton, Michael Keaton Batman movie Hmm. Uh, Batman drives into Gotham and he jumps out of the uh, into Gotham City and he jumps out of the Batmobile and he's holding some kind of little thing and he just says shields up and all these shields come up around the Batmobile. That's what I would imagine all the time. That I just I just had to put those shields up to protect myself from what nothing. I learned nothing. Right, and yet energetically with those shields and these are this is some work i kind of looked into for a while because we are energy you know we're 99 space and one one percent material and we have this electromagnetic field that we're generating all of the time and it's either mm -hmm. greater or smaller depending on our ability to be present or not and mm -hmm. in the past and future it diminishes and, and especially in fear it diminishes but yet we're when we're vulnerable and in the present moment, it's huge. Yep. And the evidence that I got 
as to how that actually works was the gal that uh, used dowsing rods to measure <laughs> the strength or, or the distance of, um, for lack of better, my aura. Mm -hmm. And so she took me through a process of past, future, and present in this 40-foot square room. And past and future, the rods open up about six feet in front of me. And then when she put a rock in my hand and had me be present, she barely got two steps in from the other side of the room. That was a 54-foot hypotenuse. And so I was in one corner, she was in the other. 50 feet compared to six, right? So with that kind of evidence, and, and, and this also explains kind of what you feel like when you go into a room and you catch somebody's eye almost immediately because your energies just kind of connect. Or you go into a room and, and everybody, you know, just kind of turns to see you, right? Because they feel you walk into the room. Interesting, yeah. And these kinds of things, I believe, happen to, uh, it's happened to me, I, I would, and I know of others that it happens to too, where we're not that special, right? Because it's, it's an ability intrinsic to each one of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in that coming out, you know, back into that, now, now you're in the, um, the explosion phase. You've had the implosion. You're in the explosion. Were there events like that that offered evidence to you of how you were progressing? Yeah. Are you asking me if I took that as evidence? Oh. Well, no. I, I'm asking you if, the, if there were, and you may not have even thought about this. So this may be new questions that you hadn't thought about. I, I get that. Are there any evidence or, or evidentiary experiences or events that you had that kind of make sense from that point of view? Yeah. Um, I, I, was, I was working at that ad agency <clears throat> when I just, I, I guess I'm going to say, um, reclaimed enough of my agency to know that I, I had to take a crack at, at literally making my own way in the world. Mm -hmm. um, so on my 50th birthday, I walked in eight o'clock in the morning, I walked into my boss's office and he saw the letter in my hand and he just said, no, no, you're not. And I said, yeah, I am. And he closed the door and he kept me in there for two and a half hours. He gave me every single thing he could think of. You're never going to make it. This is a young man's business. You'll never be able to retire. You don't know what you're doing, blah, 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 blah. And I just sat and listened to him, thanked him very much and left. There's just no way in the world that I would have done that. There's no way in the world that I would have had the presence or the wherewithal or the agency to do that if I had not experienced depression. Yeah. Some might call that faith in yourself. When my son Quinn was in his teens, he, as his older brother had before him, was playing AAU basketball. And I took him and a buddy of his to a tournament in Albany, New York. Um, we had to be up for a Friday night and the tournament was over on Sunday afternoon. We're leaving town. I see a Starbucks. I'm not driving past the Starbucks without getting coffee. <laughs> I walked in, 
And at first I said to the fellas, you know, I asked them what they wanted and I said, I'll be right back. So I walk in, I go toward the counter. I'm about fourth or fifth in line. And there's a woman in front of me and she's wearing a brown cardigan. And as she becomes aware of my presence, she starts turning this way. And as she's turning to her right to face me, I noticed that the left side of her cardigan sweater was depressed and she was wearing a badge that said, breast cancer, say it, fight it, damn it. And I looked in her eyes and I said, why do I have the impression that you are so much more alive than I am? And she just lit up. Right. And so in the time we had, she went through her diagnosis, the support of her family and her husband and her doctors and, and how she got through all that. And she said, and look at what God gave me. And she had this beautiful head of thick, auburn-colored, wavy hair. She said, before my cancer and my chemo, I had mousy brown hair that was just completely straight. So, and she told me that her name was Lisa May. So she got her coffee and it turned out she was in town because she brought her son to the tournament. She took her coffee and left. I got my coffee and the drinks for the boys. I walked out the front door of the Starbucks and I noticed to my right, there was a little embankment that kind of led up to another street um, strip mall. And I saw Lisa getting into her car. So I put our drinks on the hood of the car and I said, I'll be right back. And I ran up there and I said to her, Lisa, you're either going to understand me completely or you're going to think I'm nuts, but it doesn't really matter. I said, have you ever had the feeling that something's supposed to happen? And she said, yes. And I said, I was supposed to meet you today. I don't know why. I don't even care why, but I know I was supposed to. And all she did was smile and say, that's faith. And I thought, um, somebody's trying to tell me something. Right. Um, I mean, she, she could have sprouted wings and flown away, and I wouldn't have been at all surprised. There but, seems to be this integrated consciousness that prevails and permeates everything. Even on a quantum physics level now, they're showing how our thoughts and feelings affect our environment. And that, you know, even in the Law of Salamos back in the 40s, that they found out that experiments were altered simply by the scientists who were observing them. Oh yeah. So th these kinds of notions are, are around. There's this, um, and in talking about my NDE that I had in college, that there's this sense that I got from that, not sense, it was an inner knowing that we are all cosmic consciousness condensed into form, beginning to understand what's what that's like and part of how that shows up is that interconnectivity that provides us with serendipitous moments synchronicities people showing up in our lives that we just know that that was destined to be there like your experience and all of these other kinds of things that um, that brings that sense of awe back mm. into your experience yeah. And so when we live, at least in mine, maybe, and, uh, and I query you, do you find that the more you engage that sense of awe, the more you discover? Yes, absolutely, without a doubt. Um, and, it, and it's funny, um, in March, I, I just, I decided I wanted to create um, 
a, a writing workshop. And it was actually, it followed one of Dennis's Salon 360 sessions. Mm -hmm. And I just felt, I felt like people were struggling to, 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 to know each other and to trust each other. So I, just, I said to Dennis, look, I created this writing workshop. I would like to just offer it to the first five people who were in that salon session who want to sign up. I'll just do it. And he said, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. So um, I, I wanted to be careful that nobody could feel that anything they did in that workshop was going to be judged in any way, and certainly not by me. So my wife is a painter, and I selected, well, actually, I, I should tell you quickly about the painting. It's, it's fairly abstract. And, and Anne, Anne doesn't paint from photographs. She doesn't stand outside and paint stuff. She imagines things and paint. And paint. So I said, what were you imagining uh, when you painted this? And she told me. And what I see in that painting, which is hanging right there still, is nothing at all like what she described to me. And I thought, well, damn, that must be art. <laughs> so, art is so, truly in the eye of the beholder. And we all, we interpret everything differently bingo so i said to the folks in the group be, between week one and week two here's what i'd like you to do just write your interpretations of that painting can't be right can't be wrong and we'll see what happens well <laughs> their work was so spectacular and every single one of their pieces was so different but I recognized in them what I took to be a theme, which was they were, whether they knew it or not, bringing, if not trying to impose some order on the chaos that they interpreted in that painting. Mm -hmm. And there was just like this, I know it's not chemical, but there was just like this spiritual quick when I first created that workshop, it was supposed to be four weeks. We started March 18th. We're still going. That's um, awesome. Yeah. And it's it, and I do believe it it's biochemical as well as spiritual, because the, the chemistry in the brain, as Melissa revealed, changes dramatically when you're in those kind of processes and, and you're looking for and finding the order within the chaos. Now chaos only seems like a like it's chaos to us because we cannot see the order in it yeah and so, as you begin to to recognize oh these are just you know patterns i don't recognize yet and it seems like chaos because you it's the unknown you you get hit with this and, <laughs> and yeah i learned it kind of the i don't know by um by experience with doing large events and, and organizing people, places and things to do stuff and, and all kinds of stuff comes come up through those processes. It, it's a um, it's a wonderful process when you can begin or it's a wonderful um, acknowledgement to that infinite intelligence when you begin to recognize the patterns in the chaos that actually reveal the order and you can step mm -hmm. into that and, and move through it. Um, I, I told you about that writing workshop in response to what you said about discovery. We're still going because every single week is new. It's, it's all brand new. Yeah, it's it's just unbelievable. Yeah, it, it is. And, and the 
the feeling of, of that. Um, what just came to mind for me, I, I taught, um, as you know, I taught high school years ago and, and two years of that, I taught special ed, uh, exceptional students and, and my AP, the, our assistant principal thought I'd be great at it. So he asked me to get an emergency cert. I had an MBA at the time. That was it, a teaching cert. Well, I approached the uh, department head and said, Hey, I, 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 we had a, a brand new computer center. Um, and I said, Hey, I, I want to, I want these kids to do a research paper. They were freshmen, right? And he said, Ah, not going to happen. I said, I don't care of the detail and, and how good they are. I just wanted them to have the satisfaction of producing a product. And so I introduced it to the kids and some of them were, ah, you know, one cried because he think he thought that he would not be able to do it. He'd felt that diminished. And a lot of these kids were a lot smarter than people allowed them to think they were. And so we go through the process. Everybody has something at the end of it, some better than others. I had students work with each other, ones that were more computer literate, helping those that weren't. And by the end, the same kid that cried because he didn't think he could do it, cried because he had a finished product in his hand. Now, I believe that we, we don't give to that degree. I didn't know they couldn't. Mm. I love that. And that's the way I approach life. I don't know I can't. So why not try? Yeah. Right? Who cares if you finish? <laughs> you may not be able to, but at least you made the step forward and made the attempt. Well, that's energizing that inner child to come forth and play in some way. And we're all just adult kids, right? Yeah. Some of us with better behaviors than others. <laughs> but well, yeah, we're still and... just kids playing like you and I, you know, we're still musicians after all these years. We love to play. Um. You know, I, I don't I don't know how this could ever be presented. I'm sorry, prevented. But, you know, there's some point at which every child gets introduced to the notion of failure and it's presented as negative. Mm -hmm. That's just that's that's criminal um, because I know this is a cliche. You can't learn if you don't fail. Right. What are you going to learn from? There was a, it, at the end of the, the program that I did at Trinity College and bearing in mind, I was 28 when I started. Um, the, the program was created for people like me who were older uh, and had lives. Mm -hmm. um, it was called individualized degree program. Well, yeah, they call it adult learning now, I think. Oh, yeah, probably right. Yeah. But at the end of this program, we, every student who was in the project or the program had to create what they called a special project. So I asked, and you can imagine the committees that it had to go through. I asked if I could create a literature course. So I finally got permission and I had to create a syllabus and I, I don't want to go into too much detail about this, but I, I, I called it um, grandly enough the idea of the grotesque in modern American fiction. And I just had this notion that, you know, starting with um, Sherwood Anderson's Wineburg, Ohio, and there's a story in there called Paper Pills, in which 
the protagonist's mental illness was suggested by the fact that he kept these little paper pills in his pocket and, and took it up through, um, I think the last thing we read was Richard Yates's Revolutionary Road in which psychology and our awareness of our own consciousness had come far enough that we actually realized there was some psychological stuff going on that could be recognized and talked about it. Mm -hmm. But there was this one kid in the class, I'll never forget his name, Henry Gordonier. And I said to him, listen, there, there aren't going to be any exams in this course. What you're going to do is I'm going to divide the class in half. And every other week, you're going to write me a two-page paper, two to three pages. And at the end of the semester, you're going to submit a 15-page final paper. Every one of this kid, Henry's two to three-page papers were like trying to read a fireworks display. They were, they were brilliant, just completely brilliant, but utterly unfocused. Wow, so tangential that you couldn't really find <laughs> the thread. Yeah. To so I would, I would write yeah. all these encouraging notes all over the place, you know, develop this, develop that. When he submitted his 15-page final paper, I cried because I realized he got it. He absolutely got it. And that paper was just, I still have it. Mm. That was 1991. Um, it, it was just spectacular. And um, at, at one point, oh, and one of the reasons I love this kid was that he had come from a long line of Naval Academy graduates. And his older brother had gone and he decided that he wasn't going. And he was this enormous disappointment to his family, his father, his grandfather. I just felt, I felt for the kid. Well, a year or so after he was in my class, he asked me if I would let, write a letter of recommendation for him because he had been invited to be in some program at Brown University. And I said, you, you know I will. Yeah. Um, and I wrote it and he, and he got in. But watching that guy come into himself and discover whatever that, I mean, I don't know what to call it, that ability, catharsis. that power, catharsis. But, but for him to recognize that within himself and use it was just so incredibly gratifying. And, and even, you know, when I, when I go to schools, and I've said this to you, three and 400 kids in a gym at a time, if I leave there and I can be absolutely sure that one kid feels better, than he did before I got there, that, that, that's a win. Mm -hmm. Just go do it again. But again, that's, that's enormously gratifying too. Oh, and especially as a teacher, you know, uh, there's nothing more gratifying than to see a, a student blossom. And especially yeah. one who breaks patterns in order to do so. And, and especially family patterns or, or, behavior patterns. Um, most of those are still family, right? Because that's where you're, you know, your mother and father are God when you're growing up and that's who you want to emulate. And if they don't have their lives together, that's going to spill over because we don't know anything better, right? We're not taught any different because these are our role models. And so that's how we learn. We don't realize if we ever do that maybe some of those patterns we learned aren't effective uh, especially in our own well-being mm -hmm. over time. Yeah. And yet some are, obviously. Um, 
in this transition you saw this kid go through, how did you relate that to your own or did you? The, the transition, like the one I described for Henry? Yeah, because it, I hear or, or, or sense there's some similarity because he was facing some real trauma from the judgment of his family, which could have sent him to the same place you were in. And instead, he had the fortitude and help with folks mm. like you to get through it. Yeah, um, I think I need to take it back to... Um, the inner knowing and the conviction that I always had that I was a writer. And I can, I can remember my Marine Corps father screaming at me, yeah, but what the, what the hell are you gonna write? Um, and so I think those experiences like the one with Henry, and again, watching gyms full of elementary school kids come into themselves, um, I think it I think it restored all that to me. And it 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 made me understand with a kind of clarity that I probably didn't have before that that inner knowing was right. Mm. And that in determining that I was a writer, that I was right. So come on, man, do do something with and about that. And I know it, I know it made me more prolific. And I know that I will always write I say I say to my wife I can't not write I just I have to be writing but everything I write whether it's fiction any something deliberately creative whether it's client work that I write there's discovery in all of it absolutely all of it and right. and one of the affirmations I got was I once read uh, an interview with Billy Joel and and he said, that he loved having written, but he hated writing. And, and I knew instantly that wasn't me because I love everything about it. Right. I love everything about writing. Right, right. And, so it's just it's, kind of this accumulation of stuff that like just, you know, kept kicking me in the butt. We're, we're coming up on, on at least some time frame. <laughs> um, I don't necessarily want to adhere to that completely because there's one more question that I want to ask you. And that is, how do you perceive the level of trauma already in these kids? Ooh. Well, first of all, um, the first indication I always get is from their eyes and they're either not at ease or they're hesitant to trust and one of the most evident things is lack of sleep and and you can tell if their eyes are darkened from lack of sleep sure and you know there was some point in my life at which I started sort of transitioning to thinking about parents of young people. And if I see a young child, no matter how young, looking rested and content, my first thought is those folks are doing a really good job of parenting. Right. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't know um, if you've crossed paths with Wendy Wiener Runge on um, 
uh, LinkedIn. But she said to me in a phone conversation that the people who are raised in darkness shine the brightest lights. So I usually try to make a special point of reaching those kids to see, that seem to have some darkness about them. Because from my young life, I remember every single interaction with every single adult who seemed to believe in me for reasons that I couldn't even understand then, but I'll never forget them. Right. So, you know, if somebody someday says, wow, that clown who came and shared that ridiculous book about fish um, made a difference, I'm going to be happy about that. That's awesome. And, and it is really, it, it's wonderful to be able to touch those lives and the reality is that the kids aren't going to learn if they're not emotionally available. And if I've got those disturbed, distracted, lack of sleep look in their eyes, that they're not emotionally available in the classroom. They're gone. <laughs> Whether they're having an out-of-body experience in the classroom or not, they're just not present. And so until you reach them and at least kind of give them, even in the time you have in the classroom, some kind of solace. It gives them hope. Um, one of the other things I think children do, and I think my not being a teacher, is kind of like being a grandparent because I can just go in there and do my thing and then I get to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But they, I don't know if I should say teach you or encourage you or enable you to talk in a way that they're going to hear it. Um, I think if you go on my LinkedIn page, I think the background picture is um, of uh, a visit I made to uh, an elementary school. They put me in a gym with 300 kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, there happened to be a woman who worked for me at the time who came and was shooting video. So somebody said to me, well, how do you know if what you've written is any good or if anybody's going to like it? And I said, I don't, but you see that lady over there? They all look over and I said, she taught me something. And you know what we call it? The drawer test. And what that means is if you've written something and you don't know if it's any good, you put it in a drawer and you leave it till the next day. And they're all kind of looking at me. And I said, and you know what drawer that I put mine in when I'm doing that? And they're like, no. And I said, I put it in with my underwear. And, and they all started screaming. And, and I'm, I'm looking at the teachers and they're thinking, oh, no, who let this guy in here? Right, right, right. But then I said, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. You know why I do that? Because I know the next morning I'm going to get up out of bed and I'm going to go take a shower and then I'm going to come out. And they all said, and get your underwear. And I said, exactly. And then I'm going to be able to look at that piece. And so you had them right there in your logic flow or your the flow of your process and they were right there with you that, that is was i think the epitome of having an audience in your hand okay my way of thinking at it is that or looking at it is that was theirs and they just sort of enabled me to 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 do that and find it i mean they were just primed 
Yeah, I think most storytellers feel that way if they're really honest with themselves, because you're just you're there, you're present, you're you're basically giving yourself to the audience and you're becoming mm. a conduit from which to speak from to them, almost as though you're reflecting them in some way, shape or form. Very interesting. So one last question. Yeah. How would you offer some nugget of advice for those facing seemingly inner uh, impossible odds or, or that traumatized little child in, in their adult lives? What, other than get, it, get help, what, <laughs> what might you offer for them to kind of begin to reconnect with themselves? This is going to sound so trivial and it might even sound superficial. Trust yourself. Trust yourself. Um, I was talking to, to um, a woman who was highly persuaded of Simon Sinek and his whole why thing. And I, I'm, I'm just not a big fan of that. But she said to me, if you had this to describe your why in five words, what would you say? So I cheated and I hyphenated, but I said, I write to restore self-faith and that's what I want. And if somebody takes issue with what something I write or they don't agree with it, or they don't know what I'm up to, I really want to hear from them. I do because if people can learn to believe in themselves, I don't think I, it's a cliche again, you know, there's no limit to what you can accomplish. I know there are reasonable limits, mm -hmm. but well, based on skill set and opportunity. Yes, but 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 people who learn to believe in themselves will always surprise themselves and they'll find, as we've been discover, discussing, discovery. And then once you get there, it's like this self-feeding loop and yeah. you just keep doing it and it gets more and more rewarding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, you mentioned Dennis earlier. What a wonderful human being and, and what he does. Uh, he'd written a recommendation for me that said that, that I have radical curiosity. Oh, I love that. And it's like, wow, that was, um, and I guess I do because I, I go into different areas and, and ask questions and surmise and postulate because I, of my experiences, I, I still question them. And, and as I'm sure you do yours, mine just have to be a little, uh, on the fringes most of the time. Um, and that gives me the ability to to speak with people and, and have the kind of conversations that span the gamut of a lot of different industries and, you know, thinking and, and things like that. Uh, I, I feel so blessed in that way because it's not about me. These are just what I, uh, opportunities that I've been able to say yes to. Um, yeah, you, um, you, you, you said something earlier, um, before we started to record about, you know, you, you would talk openly with anyone and you said, I don't have anything to hide. And another thing that depression had taught me is that there are no boogeymen. And so the very first thing that taught me was there's nothing to hide from. And once you realize that you don't have to hide from anything, then you don't have to hide anything. And I don't know if that makes any sense, but I, I have a sense. very clear understanding of that. And I've, I've come to view 
my experience with depression as a as a gift. Um, it's just, I don't know, just it, can't it, have it, triumph without tragedy. Yeah, and another thing on a very practical level is, and uh, you know, yin yin and yang is probably the most obvious thing, but th that darkness cannot be followed by anything but light. It can't be. Mm -hmm. And all you have to do is hang in there and learn to cope in the darkness and the lights are coming on. They are, they do. Mark, this has been just an amazing, wonderful conversation and apocalyptic in some ways, I'm sure <laughs> for some of the viewers and for both and, of us too. And, and goofy uh, in some other ways. Uh, you know, that's what, it's fun, right? It if you're fun. not having fun, then you're probably doing something wrong. Absolutely uh, right. Th th that's another simple thing. Uh, so it, again, thank you so much for your time, for your effort, for your writing, for your ability to communicate and connect with others and help them rise from their traumas. I thank you for this opportunity, my friend. And uh, all we can do is keep doing what we do. Absolutely. Namaste and in la catch. Thank you once again for being with us for this episode of One World in a New World. I'm Zen Benefiel, your host, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>